Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tennis is the fight you get to walk away from. Renee, hello. Hey, Caitlin. How are you? I'm great. We have so much to talk about. We do. Okay, so here we are at the Ludlow House on the Lower East Side. You just returned from Chicago. We I did. a fantastic interview that you did with incredible luminary coach Kamal Murray. Kamal. We're going to get to that in a second. Before we do, should we... Dive? Have we ever had background music? I don't in think so. In our podcast? What do you think? Is it? It's kind of getting me in the groove. Yeah. Maybe it's the cocktails. Maybe it's the two cocktails you've already had, Caitlin. With CBD. I'm real <laughs> relaxed. Yeah. We could, should you so choose, to get into some topical news and talk a little bit about Justin Gimmelstab. Yeah. The former, uh, he won a Grand Slam. He uh, won a couple with uh, Venus Williams with and Venus Mixed Doubles. Mixed Doubles. Uh, Grand Slam champion, player, tennis channel broadcaster, mm-hmm. ATP uh, player council representative. Board member. Board member. Uh, and a uh, former colleague of yours mm-hmm. when you were working at the Tennis Channel. Yeah. Now has been um, arrested on Halloween for beating up... An assault. Uh, an assault. And is awaiting... Alleged. ...trial. And is now has taken a leave of absence from the Tennis Channel while he sort of sorts out his legal stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, obviously, we have to wait to see what happens. Um, you know, everybody's uh, innocent until proven guilty. Um, but uh, what we've seen over the last couple of days with uh, things that have come out um, in the press from people that have sort of um, bringing up past incidences uh, of his and, um, you know, we're hearing about stuff uh, from his wife um, in their divorce. And, you know, it's uh, it's looking pretty ugly for Justin right now. It's, it's not looking good. But again, you know, he is obviously um, vehemently denied these um, allegations. So... I, I believe going to court December 12th, yeah, I soon. think, something, uh, 10th or 12th, something s- soon, yeah. um, to determine what's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, in, in tennis terms, um, you know, Justin is a big deal, uh, certainly on the men's side of the of the tour and, and in television. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what, what comes out. C- certainly, you know, he's a polarizing figure to a lot of people. Yeah. He's had his history um of uh, some issues with you know the Anna Kornikova situation yeah. that he said some derogatory things he's also said some homophobic things in the past and you know he's worked through those issues in the past but maybe his uh his history of uh these types of things are coming back to haunt him a little bit now so we're, as I said we're going to see how and what happens tennis channel have a lot of things on their plate when it comes to this and also obviously the ATP board so we'll yeah. see what happens yeah it'll be very interesting when he was uh, on tape on the Howard Stern show, uh, talking in derogatory ways about Anna Kornikova and calling Alize Cornea a sex pot. 
justifiably got a lot of backlash for that, to which he profusely apologized and said that wasn't him and he was going to work on himself and, and, you know, in no way does any of those statements, you know, represent the way he feels. Um, And I think for a lot of people, uh, especially sort of on the tennis Twitter chatter that uh, we at Racket Magazine cannot turn our eyes away from on occasion, there has been obviously a lot, especially, you know, for me too, like uh, sort of critical uh, positioning, like, oh, well, let's see what pans out in court, but this is not a good look for this dude. This is now his like third or fourth controversial sort of thing that he's tied up in. And, um, you know, just coming from a perspective of the tennis media, there hasn't been a lot of conversation about it. Do you think everyone's kind of taking a wait-and-see look about it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, look, uh, it's like with anything. I mean, you know, some people are taking, certainly when you see the Me Too movement and what we're seeing in media of late, you know, a lot of people have sort of lost their jobs quickly. Yeah. Um, a lot of people haven't waited to see if someone is found guilty or yeah. they're just sort of, this is enough for us. Um, so... At the present moment, uh, as we speak here at the Ludlow House in New York, he <laughs> is on suspension from the Tennis Channel or yeah. has taken a leave of absence. The ATP board, I believe, are discussing on uh, what they're going to do. Um, and, you know, by the time this airs, things could change as well. So, totally. you know, from my standpoint, yeah, obviously being a colleague and obviously being in that situation, you would want at least to have your time in the court, yeah. um, at least to have um, uh, your voice be heard. Um, and until that happens, we'll see. Um as I said, he's quite a polarizing figure to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people like that, a lot of people want to bring you down and a lot of people want to support you. So yeah. when it comes to Justin, we'll see what happens. We, in fact, at Racket, did some initial digging into, you know, some court paperwork in the Santa Monica clerk's office, just kind of trying to sniff around to see what his story was because we heard, you know, through a lot of whisper networks that there was a lot going on behind the scenes with this guy. And, you know... Hey, that's why you're the journalist exactly. in this group, and I'm just the mouthpiece. Well, it's also why we haven't come out with anything, because we ha- we don't have that much that's substantiated, yeah. and then hearing this You news, don't want to be fake news, is that we what you're saying? We, <laughs> fake news, exactly right. We don't want to go out... We would never want to, you know, cast aspersions or, or make a statement that was not defensible by the facts, but it seems like a lot of people are kind of sitting on some interesting stories and anecdotes, so we'll see what happens. Well, I know you're rubbing your hands together and you're dying to hear what happens in the future because that's your journalistic exactly. standpoint coming out in you. Me, I'm just a stupid tennis player who does a podcast. <laughs> I've got a nose for So you. we'll see what happens. Let's see what happens. Okay, now on to sunnier topics. You had a fantastic sit-down in Chicago with the current coach of Sloan Stevens, a fantastic Grand Slam winning coach now, Kamau Murray, who you have known for a couple of years. Talk a little yeah. bit about how you got there, how you guys know each other. Yeah, you know... We became friends because I was uh, sharing an apartment at Wimbledon a number of years ago with Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. And I told Billie and Alana that I was moving to Chicago. And the first thing that they said to me was, you're moving to... You know, well, Billie said to me, Alana was, is a little bit more relaxed than Billie. But Billie said, you're moving to Chicago? you, you got to meet Kamal. you got to yeah. meet Kamal Murray. Do you know who Kamal Murray is? And I said, no, I, I don't know who Kamal Murray is. And at the time, he was coaching Taylor Townsend. So he was out on the tour a little bit. But she said, you got to meet Kamal. You know, he's building his tennis facility on the south side of Chicago. And he's trying to raise all this money. Mm-hmm. And this is how Billy talks, just yeah. so everybody knows. <laughs> um, and she, and I said, no. She goes, I, I'll introduce you. you gotta in, you got to meet Kamal. And I literally ran into Kamal at the transport area at the US Open that same year. So Wimbledon cut to three months later. US Open, I see Kamal. And I walk up to him and say, hey, Kamal, I'm Renee Stubbs. He goes, yeah, I know who you are. I said, listen, <laughs> Billy Jean King says, I'm moving to Chicago and i got to know you. And here's the reasons why. And uh, he was like, amazing mm-hmm. great can i take you to fundraising lunches cool. can i pretty much abuse and use you as much as possible to raise <laughs> as much money as possible 
Um, and so we did. We went to a lot of lunches together and uh, tried my best. Uh, you know, he had already done so much um, by that stage. But, you know, getting a few more people to sign checks. I did. I spent a lot of time going down to the south side at his old facility, which mm-hmm. was a dump. And yeah. he will tell you it was a dump. Literally, <laughs> the lights were going out. I go, come out. I can't see anything when I'm mm. hitting out here. He goes, we're leaving here soon. Mm. But, um, you know, he managed to uh, get about $17 million of philanthropy money from a lot of amazing people in Chicago to build this incredible tennis facility on the south side. Excess Tennis Village, that is an educational and tennis facility. It's, uh, you know, it's one of the things that you'll find out. It's it's not only tennis, but it's also educational. Um, they use the TUF program, which mm-hmm. is also something that I represent and am an ambassador for, which is a life skills program. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you've been to the south side, they need... Need, they need places like this yeah. to make these kids feel safe, yeah. to give them some kind of place to aspire to be a tennis player, and also his biggest goal is to get them to go to college. Yeah. And what impressed me so much about this conversation you guys had, and clearly you had so much shared history, and there's something really profound about understanding someone and their vision and their backstory and their own personal sort of motivations. And then when they choose to put that into action and yeah. create a vision for something larger. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, based not only on what he's managed to achieve with help from wonderful people in Chicago, yourself, from his own mm-hmm. experience growing up as a kid playing mm-hmm. tennis and having access to other people in his community, that's obviously very meaningful. Yeah, listen, I mean, I, he was very serious. Yeah. I just want to preface that. He's very serious in this conversation. <laughs> and, you know, I think he he's such an... Uh, he understands the importance of his voice. Yeah. But, you know, away from that, because I had dinner with him that night, he's very different. You know, <laughs> he drops the F-bomb every now and again, which he managed to not do, it. I think, not through the once. whole thing. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he's he's a real person. But I think when he talks and he is talking about his foundation and when he's talking about things that are important to him, he's very serious because it means so much to him. And obviously you'll find out Kamal's a great guy and he's changing the dynamic of tennis in Chicago, but he's also changing the dynamic of coaching around the world. He's one of my best friends and I love the guy. And he's a great, great, thoughtful talker. All right, enjoy our interview with Kamal Murray. All right, so here I am in uh, Chicago, and I've been joined by one of the best coaches, and actually up for Coach of the Year this year, uh, Kamal Murray, and we're at his uh, Southside tennis facility called Excess Tennis Village, which uh, we'll get into and explain a little bit more about that. But uh, Kamal, hey man, thanks, you're one of my best friends, so thanks for joining me for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Kamal, um, all right, so let's face it, you're the black kid growing up in the Southside of Chicago. How in God's green earth did you get into tennis? <laughs> so um, when I was seven years old, uh, my parents took 40 young men to Africa. Actually, my, bra- my brother's AAU team took them to Senegal um, for like an exchange where they played against the Senegalese national team. I was obviously seven years old and it needed that drug me along because they couldn't leave me here in the States for 10 days. So when we came back, it was July 27th and all the summer camps were full except for a tennis camp. Naturally, in my community, no one wanted to play tennis. So that was the only one at the end of the summer that still had some open enrollment. So uh, my mom was a high school principal, so she had to work in the summer. And my dad was an attorney, so he had to work, you know, 365 days a year. So they needed some place to stash me until school started. And so the tennis program, uh, we were driving down 87th and Jeffrey. And uh, my mom saw the tennis courts where my uncle used to play. And he said, uh, how much for the rest of the summer? And the guy said, it's 12 bucks for the rest of the summer. And she said, boy, get out. <laughs> and so she literally kicked me out the car, 
right, kicking and screaming. I was crying, like, I can't play tennis, I don't want to play tennis, how am I going to get home? Um, you know, I'd get beat up in my neighborhood if they found out I played tennis. You know, this is, you know, not a cool sport, blah, blah, blah. But it was convenient babysitting for my mother. So, at the time, it was out of pure convenience. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. So, no aspirations of being a tennis player, no interest, just convenient babysitting. So, what happened? Um, so, the convenient babysitting continued. So, I was a basketball player up until that point. You know, I played at the YMCA. My, my brother's six foot nine, played basketball at DePaul. My dad's six foot five, played basketball in college as well. Uh, and Norm Van Leer was the best man at his wedding. So, basketball was in my genes. And so, obviously, if you're in a tennis court with a bunch of kids who probably did not make the basketball team, you're the best athlete out there. So, at the end of the summer, uh, the tennis coach told my mother that this kid has potential. And he informed her about a free program that was a mile away from my grammar school. So once again, my mom gets these great ideas about convenient babysitting. So I had three siblings. And so they all played different sports. My sister played. And it was free. And it was free, right? So my sister played uh, was a swimmer. My brother played basketball. And my older sister played volleyball. And so if there was any program a mile away from my grammar school that my mom didn't have to pick me up, and could worry about the other three, I was going to do it. So it could have been like underwater polo. Uh, and yeah, but don't you think that your mom maybe actually thought tennis was a good sport for you? I not mean, at all. <laughs> My mom was an academician. She, was, she had no interest in sports to this day. She's never seen me play a tennis match. So it was literally no interest at all, no aspiration of being a crazy tennis parent, driving all across the country at tennis tournaments. It just was, I've got three other kids who played three different things, my Volvo station wagon is like a route around. This is one kid that I don't have to worry about because he can walk here. And it's free five days a week. Mm. And so it was a safe place uh, on the south side of Chicago, which mm. there aren't that many. Mm. Wow. So, okay. So you get into tennis. You stop being pretty good, actually. And then and then your mom and dad are like, hey, maybe we can get a college scholarship out of you, too. So you technically have been free your whole life. I mean, yeah, yeah. So you got a, techni- you got a t- tennis scholarship at FIU, correct? Uh, Florida A&M. F- Florida A&M. A&M. Yep. So how was that experience for you as well? It was great. It was, um, you know, my, my parents, when I was 14, right? And right around 14 is where all the kids start getting a little squirrely. They start seeing how tennis kind of invades your social life, <laughs> how you miss homecoming because of a tennis tournament or whatever. Uh, and it was about the time where I was like, eh, this is cool. I'm pretty good, but I'm not great. I don't love it. I just kind of am good at it. Um, and it's kind of getting in the way of hanging out after school. With the girls. With the girls. Uh, going to the, the hair washing library after school and hanging out and pretending to do homework. Um <laughs> So we want to tell your mom that. Yeah, exactly, right. So then my parents said, "Well, look, we've all blessed you with good genes. My mom was very smart, and my dad was a great athlete. All of you all should and, find." And let's and wait, wait a second. And smart. And, and smart. Yeah. What is he a judge by this? Yeah, time? he's a judge. Yeah, so come on, give me a he's break. He's a smart dude too, but he's the one with the height and the athleticism. I'm so, protecting you, Mister Murray. <laughs> so he, uh, you know, he said, "You all better find the ball and hit it, kick it, shoot it, spike it, because we're not paying for college. Because we shouldn't have to." And so, although my parents probably could have paid for college, my older brother at that time was being recruited for basketball. My older sister was being recruited for volleyball. Um, I was 14 and sort of indifferent to tennis. And my younger sister was a superstar swimmer and track star. So she was a state high jump champion two years in a row. So, um, you know, my dad said, you can quit if you want to, but I'm not paying for college. I'm like two, and oh, two, two for two right now. You're number three. You better keep it going here, right? Uh, and so I just kept going. And then when I was a 
you know, junior, senior in high school, I started getting letters from all types of schools and, uh, you know, ended up at Florida A&M. Another kid from Chicago was the graduate assistant coach there. Uh-huh. So there was a relationship there, um, and that's how I ended up at FAMU. All right, so I'll, I'll get to the crux of, like, why we're here today, but... You, you graduate from school, you go to New York, I believe, you do pharmaceutical sales, mm-hmm. you are enjoying that, and you come back to Chicago, and this is kind of where everything changed for you. You came back here and did what? Yeah, so I came home right about this time, you know, Christmas season, to visit my parents. I was living in New York, and the old facility where I learned to play had been taken over by another club operator. And what used to be a place that had tons of minority kids with free and affordable programming, uh, was now sort of underutilized, underpopulated, um, prices through the roof, um, not n- the pricing structure could not be supported by the neighborhood. And so, you know, I stayed home for a weekend, um, hung out, went back. I was on my United flight drinking a Jack and Coke. And I had <laughs> well, that's big that. time for you because I know you don't drink Jack and Coke anymore. You're yeah, like yeah, more yeah. about the fruity drinks, but like, we won't get into that. <laughs> So I had this bright idea. I said, you know, I'm going to buy out the current operator and, like, you know, restart the program. And, you know, went back to work, obviously, in New York. Called my parents and said, hey, I want to buy out, you know, the current operator at the old club. I want to make it like it was. I want to have free tennis. I want to have affordable private lessons. I want to have affordable groups. I want to have this melting pot of black, white, Asian, Hispanic, all who used to come here and just hang out, you know, tutoring, mentoring, all these other things that I think helped me sort of, you know... Get through life. Get through life and stay out of trouble. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was very much a kid in the middle. Middle middle child from a middle-class family in a middle-class neighborhood uh, and without sort of clear direction. I didn't know what I wanted to be in life. And so that kid could easily go the other way. Yeah. Right? And so tennis helped me continue to move forward as opposed to going backwards. And so I wanted to kind of create a safe haven where people could come and all move forward together. And, um, you know, got so the courage to do it. Took a loan from my parents, right? Wait, wait, wait. Well, hold on a second. You went to your mom and said that, and she said... Well, yeah, she's and- like, boy, you out of your mind. She said, I'm two years from retirement. I don't have X amount of dollars to give you. You know, the house is... I got only on 20 grand on my house. Good luck. <laughs> I, uh, and then my dad called me a couple of days later and said, hey, I talked to your mom. She told me what you want to do. I think you're out of your mind, but I'll refinance the house and loan you the money. But I need it all back, right? And, um, you know, my mom again called me and says, yeah, I know you and your dad had a conversation. She said, I just want to know. I didn't have to pay for you to play tennis. Why do I have to pay for other people's kids to play tennis? I was like, well, it's an investment. Um, you get it all back. It's something good for the community. You know, we should do it. You know, you, you, whatever, right? And so... Um, she was like, okay, fine. So they refinanced the house, loaned me the money. Thank God. Paid them all back six months later. Um, and, you yeah. know, uh, they got all their money back. So they, I'm, I'm out of debt from them. The the excess tennis has paid off its startup capital. Um, and we're in a good shape now. Now we moved into a $17 million facility, 27 courts. But, okay, okay. But what gave you the impotence to think that you could do what you've done, which was raise $17 million approximately, right, Mm -hmm. to build one of the biggest tennis facilities in the world? Yeah, other than big balls. You know what? It's funny. You know, from where I was in life, I didn't really have anything to protect. I wasn't wealthy. I was making 
ten grand, you know, at my current job, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, is not great. In New York. Right, in New York, right? It's not great. Um, Were you married by this time? No, I was still single. Still single, no kids, right? Uh, which also makes you very brave. Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of times people, you know, we kind of go through life and we try to protect our position. We protect where we are. We protect, we live this very safe career. The unknown is scary. The unknown is scary. And for me, it was like, I'm kind of at the bottom already. I don't have anything to protect. I mean, I'm from nothing, right? And the only thing I can do is go up. So, you know, what I was, though, I will say is that being from Chicago and doing the right thing my entire life, I had a great support system, mm-hmm. right? And I grew up in a family that was used to things going right. I was used to seeing people start things and finish things. My mom had the attitude, if I'm going to be involved, it is going to work and mm-hmm. it's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So I had that level of courage. Uh, I had also had great mentors um, like uh, Les Coney or... Mary Emanuel or James Bell or John Rogers or Robbie Robinson, who I said, you know what? All great entrepreneurs and great business minds of Chicago. Yes, all very prominent business people in Chicago, African-American guys. Um, And, you know, when you have those people around you, A, you know they won't let you fail, Mm. right? But B, you know that with them behind you, it's going to succeed, right? Because they have the financial wherewithal, they have the relationships. They have the mindset to challenge you to keep making sure you're making the right idea, the right moves forward. And so I think that, you know, A, growing up in a household where the expectation, Excellent. success was the expectation, um, taught me to say, hey, I'm going to do this. And I, I, when I start something, I expect it to work, right? And I'm not going to stop until it does. Uh, B, having the support of some key individuals, you know, like Penny Pritzker and, um, you know, Don Edwards. And the list goes on and on. Billie Jean, yourself. So I sort of had Walter family, Melody Hobson. I had a lot of people here who was like, you know what, I got some pretty good supporters. If this doesn't work with that lineup of supporters, it won't work anywhere, Mm. right? And so that kind of gave me the courage and the confidence to kind of go forward. Okay, so you're literally in the middle of building, as I said, one of the great tennis facilities. And if people are out there that come to Chicago, you need to come to this facility and check it out, if anything, and see what it's doing. But... But you also, as that was all happening, you decide to take a full-time coaching role with Sloane Stevens. So, I mean, the juggling that you were doing then, how difficult was that? Because you just said that you, when you do, you're essentially saying when you do something, you want to do it excellently, mm-hmm. right? So you're doing this amazing program. You're building this incredible facility. So you want to do the excellence behind it. And I know you. You sleep like two hours a fucking night, which is like insane. But then you take on Sloane. So what was the juggling act like for you? Yeah, so initially, I mean, we were already under construction, right? We had just broken ground. And, you know, in Chicago, construction in Chicago is hard. Yeah. Um, weather is, weather is a bitch. Weather is, is tough. Um, there are always hurdles. Uh, there are always political issues that need to be constantly monitored. Um, community engagement that needs to happen, um, you know, on a consistent basis. And... You know, there was a lot of criticism, actually, for not stepping away, but traveling so much, committing Mm -hmm. to a a very intense travel schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that the people didn't understand that this was actually could be a great complementary thing to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. It could be a great example. Working with Sloan. Working with Sloan would be great. It would be great to take the mission here, 
give it a global platform mm -hmm. with a very talented player, mm -hmm. uh, a very charismatic player, um, one who was also African-American, yep. uh, one who was very philanthropic and had a great heart for kids, yep. um, and could personally, as me being the figurehead behind Excess, could get rid of this notion like, oh, he's just a good Southside coach. Yeah. Right. Oh, he's building a community center because that's not what we're building. We were mm -hmm. trying to build one of the best places to play tennis in the country mm -hmm. that just so happened to be located on the south side of Chicago. Yeah. And so early on, people were reducing what we were doing to, oh, he's building a tennis YMCA. I was yeah. like, guys, come on. I think I'm a pretty good coach. Yeah. I think I have great mentors and great people I talk to, Zena Garrison, Billie Jean King, Renee. I mean, a lot of people I talk to. It's like, we're not just building a YMCA, right? So I think working with Sloan helps sort of elevate. You your know, your status. My status, which also helps people believe more in the program. Yeah. Right? And so I always knew it was complimentary because I was connecting all the dots where I think the people who were criticizing earlier, like, oh, my God, he's not committed or he's kind of stepping away. They weren't really connecting it. I think now they all get it. Um, but how stressful was that time for you? It's very stressful. But you know, I've learned you just got. Oh, hey, listen, you got to work. You got to work. I've learned you got to just keep going. You know what I mean? So you got to keep going, and you got to just you know trust that you know all the dots to connect. Because tennis is like a very small fraternity. There yeah. aren't a lot of people yeah. who play tennis on the south side in the inner city program, went to college, still has a relationships with went to work in corporate America. Right, has a relationship with tennis legends to sort of get all the things at play. Mm -hmm. Has that context of the the, the black history in tennis mm -hmm. from you know my old facility, Zena Garrison used to come to, Arthur Ashe came to, mm -hmm. Venus and Serena came to, mm -hmm. Marjorie Navislova came to, mm -hmm. Pam Shriver's been there. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of things that we I was trying to kind of put together in this big pot of gumbo, mm -hmm. where I think someone who doesn't have that perspective really didn't totally get and was hard for them to understand. Right, but I think now everyone is crystal clear mm -hmm. on why taking a job was important. Um, a people also forget I left a full time job mm -hmm. to get into the philanthropic world. Yeah, right, and I also had a family. Yeah, and so at some now point, you have family. Yeah, you know, you have plenty. Of family. Well, when I and when I had Sloan, I was my my wife was pregnant. Yeah, you know, with the first kid. So there's also like you know I also have things personally that I want to achieve. Mm -hmm. I have people I have to take care of. Um, and this sort of facility, this program is my gift to the community, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily pay my bills. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so in that spirit, it was also a great, you know, a great opportunity. So you go on the Rovers line, you start working with her. Um, you have a great start to your teamwork together. And then she gets injured for a period of time. Mm -hmm. um, you come back and how, give us a little bit of background into that, those couple of months and, you know, the culmination, obviously, of winning the U.S. Open. Yeah. How crazy Well, it was. it was more than a couple months. It was 11 months, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think for the first three or four, I mean, she literally was in the boot and couldn't do anything. And mm -hmm. so she had, you know, a good amount of time for her to focus on her foundation, focus on her social life. I mean, you know, tennis players give up a lot of their childhood. A lot of things they don't experience because yeah. they're constantly playing tennis. Constantly the prom, vacations. Absolutely. Trust me, I get it. Yeah. And Sloan graduated from college mm -hmm. during that time. Yep. So, you know, to her credit, she used that time wisely. Um, and so it was like probably three or four months where we didn't even speak. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, about the fifth month, we started getting touched, started watching, you know, talking about things that are happening on tour, cracking jokes, making fun of people, you know, <laughs> sort of re-engaging and checking back into the professional tennis world. Yeah. Right. And then starts getting clear to, okay, you can do non-weight bearing. 
Yeah. Okay, now you can do weight bearing with no movement, right? And so it was sort of a process. And for me as a coach, you know, I'm probably one of the few people to coach on tour and also coach five-year-olds, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It was a great opportunity for me to actually teach yeah. Sloan, yeah. right? As opposed to just coaching, okay, let's do cross course, let's do two-on-ones, let's do up and back, let's mm-hmm. do all the surf plus one. You know, that's coaching, right? Mm-hmm. It was a good opportunity when you have someone where they can't move mm-hmm. and they have to sit there and listen to you. Especially Sloan. Especially Sloan, right? <laughs> uh, and especially me, right? I can be hard to be around on tennis court sometimes, right? So we were sort of trapped together. Mm. And I thought that was a good time for her to actually slow down and improve on some things. Mm-hmm. And I think that is why she's a different player now. Because at 11 months gave her and I an opportunity to, you know... Dissect the game a little bit. Let's dissect and let's isolate a few things, work on them in a very patient, methodical manner. Because right. we're not preparing for Rome in two weeks. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh, and let's do it. And, and I think... Were you shocked when uh, she played as well as she did in Canada and then Cincinnati? Were you like, oh, this is great? Because she had to battle. Okay, back up a little bit. What was the part of that period of time? Because I know for me what I saw, but what do you think the period of time was in that, that month period of Cincinnati and Montre- uh, in Canada? What did you see differently? Well, let's be clear. When we started working together uh, in November of fifteen. Right, she won Auckland in yeah. January. 16th. Yeah, no, you had a great start. She to won Acapulco, and she won Charleston. Yeah, which is a premiere. Yeah, right. And so she had already started to kind of uh-huh. learn how to win, win. Yeah. right, and learn how to finish matches and learn how to put a whole week together. Yeah, right. And so I think if you look at her, the past three years for her, yeah. you can't. A lot of people look at it from, you know. Canada yeah. to the U.S. or to now, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I look at it at January to, let's say, March. Yeah. Then you get injured, right? And then we restart again and we pick up. So I think what you see in Canada is sort of Sloan learning how to win over the past year and a half. Yeah. But now with a few more tools, right? Now hitting the ball a little cleaner. Is it, is it learning the tools, as you said, you talked, but is it also uh, having a better appreciation of... Her, her life a little bit as well so so she she learned how to win she won you know particularly Charleston was a big tournament for her to win and then she gets injured so at that moment she's learned how to win big tournaments she's learned how to win a lot of big matches under pressure and then the game was taken away from her a little bit mm-hmm. so do you think that also for Sloan in particular she learned that she loved the game as well and did that was that the the, the extra impotence to win the, you know, do as well as she did in Canada and Cincy and then eventually win the US Open. So she already had the base that you had worked on her with and then the, sometimes it's the real total desire, right, is the next step. Do you think that she learned maybe something when, she, when the game was essentially taken away from her? And you don't know. You don't know how you're going to recover after a major injury like that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of scary. You know, because really tennis is so much about that little bit of passion, okay? When it, when the shit hits the fan on a court and you have choices, am I going to fight really hard? Am I going to dig in or not? And it's normal to not dig in all the time because it's really bloody hard to be really good. Do you think that that sort of helped her a little bit to appreciate what she actually was doing for a living? Okay. Um... 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, I think that... You're not tough. Like, you're tough. So you're like, yeah, with the emotional bullshit. But, but, you know, think about it from that perspective a little bit. You know, I think that you don't play tennis your entire life. Because it's a very isolated sport. It's a very hard sport to be out there by yourself, you know, taking all the, all the accountability for the, of the wins and the losses. It's very tough. So I think that you don't really get as good as she is without loving the sport. Yeah. I think there are, you know, stretches in the tour, right, and moments in your tennis career where it is tough and sort of the look and your demeanor you know, is not that of Do, someone. Doesn't match. It doesn't match. What right? you're feeling. It doesn't, doesn't really matter what you're feeling. It doesn't mean you're out of love with the sport. It just means you're in a tough time. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we take that and we overplay it. So I think that she always loved the sport. I think that it's like people go on vacation. Sometimes you work in corporate America, you take two week vacation, you come back in January and you renew. Mm-hmm. I think she had an extra long vacation and she came back with a renewed love. Love. I don't think she ever. I don't think she ever not loved tennis. I don't think that she was ever fall felt love for, out of love. Love it. for the fight. But it was like love of the fight, and she was fresh. Yeah. You know, she started back that year in July, yeah. where everybody had played for six months. Yeah. Right, and so she also had a fresher body. Yeah. Right. She had a fresher perspective. Um, she had taken some time to enjoy her life, yeah. so she probably was a bit happier. Yeah. Because she had some freedom and some time. Uh, to do some normal normal person things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know that it was, oh, the game was taken away from me, now I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I think it was like, that was probably the longest stretch where I really couldn't play a tournament mm-hmm. since I was seven years old. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it was good to take that long of a vacation, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the tennis off season is very short, almost too short, right? Yeah. So, um, Hell no, it's not short. What are you, out of your mind? Fucking tennis is long. I mean, it's, it's like January I mean, to October. Yeah. Come on. Tennis is long, so it's yeah. too short. The off season is too short. Oh, the off season too short. Yeah, yeah the off season is way too short. Yeah, you yeah, know what I mean? way too short. Uh, for as grueling of a tour it is. So I think that that's what it was. She was fresh. She had a fresh perspective. She had already started to build some confidence. Mm-hmm. We had had some momentum together. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was, because we had those three tournament victories together, there was some belief in those teaching times. Like, okay, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. I'll just do it. Yeah, yeah. I'll do what he says, right? Where that can be tough because sometimes it's hard to get a player who's 23 years old who's already top 20 in the world to say, oh, I'm going to let you tinker with my game. Yeah, yeah. Right? But because we had, you know, a year and a half of some very successful tournaments, she's like, okay, I'll let you tinker. Oh, tr- and I thought that was a good thing. So what do you tell her before the final? And what did you do the day before? I know this story, but it's kind of fun to, to hear you because you're uh, somebody who really is a, you like to 
to listen to others and to help you be better at what you do. And, and whatever it is, building the Southside facility here was listening to great, particularly African-American black entrepreneurs that have done great things and listening to them to make uh, this facility better. Now, mm-hmm. with coaching, tell me what you did the day before the final. So, hey, I always, you know, Sloan always just makes fun of me because I wear the same thing every day. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? Who knew you are going to be in New York for two and a half weeks? <laughs> right? And so I think by that time, my little white shirt was a little smelly. And it was time to wash it. So, Wait, don't tell me you wear the same fucking shirt without washing it. Please tell me you're not that I guy. I've three or four days. Oh, my yeah, God. I'm a, come I'm a guy. I'm a dude. Come on, God. I'm a guy. The worst. I'm a guy. I, I, I go three or four days and wear the same hoodie. Yeah, I know. You wear the same hoodie and you have the same breakfast every morning. Same what, breakfast. What's your breakfast every McDonald's, day? number five, a medium coffee, six and six. You know, it's very predictable. Do not, people at home, do that, okay? So, you know, I was, it was about time to wash, you know, so I texted, I hadn't really had time because, you know. It's busy. It's busy. You're like, got the match days that are like full days. Then you have the off days in between where it's practice and it's, you know, massage and it's press. Babysitting. Babysitting, dinner, and you know, you know, you're on call, right? Your job is to be there for the player. So I hadn't really hung out with Billy and Alana yet. And so I had to. Billy Jean King and Alana Alana (laughs) Claus. So I was, A, needing to wash some clothes, and they uh, don't live far from a hotel. And I hadn't hung out with them. So I had been texting Billy. He's like, oh, we got Rosie over here. And, you know, everybody's over. So I said, all right, I'm going to come over and bring my laundry. <laughs> right? And then I bring my laundry, wash clothes, sit there for a couple of hours. Alana folds my underwear, you know, and just... I was like, you can just throw it back in the bag. Wait a um, second. I've stayed at Billy and Alana's. They didn't do my laundry. <laughs> what? <laughs> they must love me a little more than that. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I go over there, wash my clothes. And no, they feel sit. sorry for you, clearly. Yeah, In- that's Incapable it. of folding your own clothes. That, too. I'm, I'm the baby of the crew, so yeah. I get a little bit of special treatment. But, you know, I sat there, and I was like, you know, so, Billy, tell me about your first Grand Slam final. Because I've never played a Grand Slam final. Yeah. And so, my job is to help this player. Yeah. And I don't know what she's going to feel tomorrow. She doesn't know what she's going to feel tomorrow. I have an idea on what I think she needs to feel. Right, but let me sit around and learn and listen yeah. to other people talk about what it's like to walk out there and not throw a stadium. P.S. Uh, and by the way, to every coach out there, this is a great lesson for you. If you don't know everything, don't try and know everything. Yeah, right? no, I don't. You know, who knows, right? So go to dinner with Sloan. I go over to Lion's house by Lion Billy's like nine o'clock. Wash my clothes, sit there, have some chicken uh, <laughs> and <laughs> some fried chicken. I think I had that when I went over there. Oh too. yeah, that's their famous for ordering in fried chicken, right? So. <laughs> Uh, sit there, listen to her and Rosie. Uh, Alana actually was not a part. She was doing the laundry. And uh, we just talked about, you know, a few moments. You know, Billy gets in her story. Well, I remember when I was... Da, 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 da. And it was nothing specific to Sloan, right? Because they don't know her that well. So it was not like, if I were you, I would tell her this, right? It was more, I remember in 19 blah, 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 when I played blah, 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 and I was feeling this, 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 and this. And it was just, I was just sitting there and listen. Sponge. Right? Right, and then I happen to have some of Sloan's laundry in my laundry. Okay, and so got back to the hotel, um, and you know the entire two weeks I had never gone to Sloan's room. I'd never like bothered her the night before. Yeah, you, you know, text. We, you yeah, we text. We do the work over dinner. We do the work in the car. Do the work at the site. I'd never gone to her room, but I knew she probably would be like filling it a little bit. Uh, and so I had taken some of her laundry down, right, um, and. You know, actually, Sybil sent me a text and says... Her mom. So her mom sent me a text and says, Sloan's a little nervous. 
She's like in a full body sweat. You may want to go talk to her. I'm like, maybe she has the flu. Or something like, go down there and make sure she's okay. Right? This, this is a hell of a night to be sick. So go down there. I'm like, hey, I got your tank top, you know, and your sports bra that you need. I'm like, I don't need that. I got my clothes already and blah, blah, blah. You just want to come check on me. I said, damn right, I want to come check on you. So then he's like, all right, come on in. Right? So then it was like, hey, open invitation to sort of like talk about it. Right? And so you sit there and you let her talk. Right? And then, you know, it's, it's good not to respond right away. Yeah. Right? And so um, didn't respond. Like, oh, you'll be fine. It's no big deal. You know, no one will probably come. You know, you two are young players. Stadium will probably No be one's going to come. Yeah. Did they, yeah. <laughs> don't worry. Arthur Stadium will be empty. Just, just pretend you're playing Madison on the back yeah, court somewhere. Yeah, you played her multiple times, just like playing a little practice match. We actually played Madison our first practice of the year in New York, of the yeah, tournament. Yeah. We that, shared a court. It, how many times has that happened, though? Yeah, it's kind it, of random, it's right? Very random. I always like the first player I see, I'm going to play for sure. Yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, oh, no big deal. You know, we'll be all right. You know, you just keep the ball on the court. You know, you'll be fine. Stay when we be half half empty because Serena's not playing this year, and you know everybody comes to see what Serena. You know, you'll be fine. No big deal, right? And she was like, you know, our lives could change tomorrow. I was like, wow, she said that to you. Yeah, she's like, oh, lives could change tomorrow. I could be a Grand Slam champion, the person that lost it. And I was like, yeah, I could be a Grand Slam. I was like, my life gonna be the same regardless. <laughs> not like, really. Be fine, right? So it was like, not really, right? But you know, you try to like kind of like reduce and help them manage the moment, manage the stress. Um, and then went back to my room and sort of process, right? And so by that time, I had already figured in my mind how we should play the match, mm-hmm. right? And so we very briefly um, give it to her, you know, just so she has extra 12 hours to kind of soak it in and think about it. Um, tactically. Tactically, what yeah. to do, yeah. you know, how to play. How, to, how do you set yourself up? You know, Madison mm-hmm. is a great player, doesn't have a lot of things that she doesn't do well. So mm-hmm. it's how do we kind of focus on ourselves for tomorrow? Because yeah. it's really hard to be in your first Grand Slam final, yeah. right? And to focus on somebody else. Yeah. Right? So it's like, here are the things that you need to do. Yeah. Right? Uh, to sort of manage your nerves, manage your stress, and manage the moment. And so, and the truth of the matter is, five or ten minutes before the match, it all goes out the window anyway. Yeah. Because in that moment, you're just so stressed, you're just trying to make the ball. Um, and so, the night before, was it was great. And then after that, I went out for drinks. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, after, the, after you went to Billy's. After I went to Billy's, and I, I went to Sloan, and I went out for drinks. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, because I don't think people realize at home how bloody stressful coaching is because you feel you feel so responsible for everything that you've just told your player and you know that it could be the difference between winning and losing so how tough is that for you oh because i know you you're i don't know if people realize watching you in the stands which is a joke okay (laughs) for everyone at home everybody knows how you feel in the stands but how stressful is that like moment where is there been times too where you're like oh shit what you told them is not working and you're like ugh. Yeah, you know, and like, they look oh at shit, you. I got that wrong. Yeah, and they look at you like mm, that side eye, like uh huh. Uh-huh. I, I can name I can name two matches where there were one or two things that was like, shit, we should have did something different. Yeah. Or shit, we should, instead of that, we should have did this. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, lucky for us, now we have the encore coaching in women's tennis, so yeah. you get to go out there and kind of regroup, right? But in yeah. Grand Slams, you don't. Yeah. But you know, a I think you want to make sure you got it right. Mm-hmm. Right. You want to make sure you did your job and help them as much as possible. B, you want to make sure they interpreted what you said correctly. Yeah. Sometimes you can say the right thing and they don't hear it correctly. They're either too literal or not literal enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, those things are always, you don't really know until the first three games. Yeah. Like the first three games, you're like, oh, 
I probably wasn't clear enough. Yeah, yeah. Or I don't think she understood what I meant. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? So, but that night you're kind of like, damn, did I say too much? Yeah. Or should I have left this unsaid? Yeah. Like sometimes a good coach leaves certain things unsaid. Like don't don't talk it up. Like don't bring it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Don't 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 like don't bring it up and make them think about it even more. You know what I mean? Um, so things are going swimmingly in the final. You get up pretty comfortably in the second set, and are you just thinking, "Oh my God, this is going to happen! Like this is going to absolutely happen!" I mean, how crazy was it when that last point was played? I mean, everybody knows the her look of just turning around, looking at you guys, like, "Did this just fucking happen?" Yeah. And um, you, I think that other than the birth of your children, which we know is you've had a couple, I had to faint. Oof, my yeah. goodness. Um, I think that. You know, I was happy for her. I was happy for her mother. I mean, her mother's invested more than I have, right? Her mother invested 17 years into, into this whole process, right? I mean, right? essentially as a single parent. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and a lot of money financially. You know, a lot of mental energy and mm-hmm. stress. Obviously, her mother. Uh, happy for Sloan because I think we all, you know, the entire tennis world knew she had the potential to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think it had given her some grief about not having done it, mm-hmm. right? So that monkey was finally off her back. Mm-hmm. Um, but how much impotence did it? Did, how much satisfaction did it also give you as a minority coach? Oh, because yeah. ironically, that year there was uh, every. I believe every person that won a Grand Slam that year was a female coach, and then you were the last one. And it was either going to be you or Lindsay Davenport. Oh. So essentially, minority coaches, women, mm-hmm. Medina Garrigas, Conchita Martinez. Uh, I can't remember who won the Australian Open that year, which is terrible, but. You potentially, it was one of the two of you, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, it's you. Yeah, you know, for me, I was, I looked at it like, wow, okay, I'm an African-American coach to coach somebody to a Grand Slam, right? And there's only been two others. Walter Johnson coached um, Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson, yeah. and then Richard Williams coached, obviously, his two children, and then it was me. Yeah. And so I was like, whoa, shit. You know, now you're in, like, an elite sort of historic very small group of people, right? Um, And that was very satisfying. And you never know what that's going to do, right? But I was also um, excited for the people who had supported me, Mm. right? You know, you get people who are early supporters of XS and early donors and say, oh, Kamal's a really good guy. He's a rising star. He's a great coach, right? And then this was like, hey, guys, I told y'all he was a great coach, right? You know what I mean? So I think I was happy for... Sloan's entire family and everybody that had a hand in it, happy for Sloan, happy for, not necessarily myself, mm-hmm. but happy for the people that had supported me because mm-hmm. now they had something tangible to say. Told you guys he was a rock star, right? And then, you know, I was happy for history. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's significant that you get an African-American Grand Slam champion, right, um, who... You know, since Lindsay, all the U.S. Grand Slam champions have been African American. Yeah. Right. Incredible. Right. Being in Serena and Sloan, and you get an African American coach. Right. And so I thought that that's not was another American that has won a Grand Slam, correct? Since Lindsay. Wow. Other than the Williams sisters. Right. That's incredible. And so you know, it's a lot of right now. I take a lot of responsibility, a lot of pride, but there's also like a lot of responsibility because you have someone's career in your hands. And so I was also relieved. And whew, I got that right. Or that talk last night helped. Mm-hmm. Or you know, the, the, the talk five minutes people walking on the court help. You know, you don't really want to be the reason someone doesn't achieve something. Mm-hmm. And so I was happy that I was able to help her. Uh, I was happy for her team, again, happy for all of my supporters. 
Um, and, you know, it was like, okay, that was pretty fun. You know, and I think, I'm, my mom was a history teacher, so I'm a big historian. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is like going to be historic. It's a big I was like, deal. this is kind of a big deal. Not that you get a big head about it, mm-hmm. but it was sort of a big deal, mm-hmm. right? Um, do, so, you, do you, and with the facility here in uh, Chicago at Excess, is it important for you to also make sure that, you know, you're giving kids that look like you, you know, that belief that they can do whatever it is, coaching or playing or going to college. And the biggest, the mo- what's the most important thing about Excess to you, Excess Tennis Village here yeah. in, in Chicago? What's the, what's the most important thing for you? Well, I, I think, number one, um, that the success and the caliber of coaching in this building transcends its location. Right. Normally, the south and west side gets the opportunities it can afford. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, people take advantage of programs they can afford, not necessarily the best programs that, oh, wow, they can also afford them. Right. Um, and so, you know, I was proud that now all the people in the program who may not have really understood the value that we're getting were like, oh, my goodness, I'm like a part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy that runs my program is actually, you know, like one of the world-class caliber coach, coach mm-hmm. right? And so I think that raised their level of pride, mm-hmm. which is what's needed in these communities, right? Mm-hmm. It's pride. Um, I think we were able to drop the... Access to. Access to that, right? I mean, to be able to walk in here any day of the week and I'm just sitting in here, mm-hmm. right? Or to be able to see me on the court with a five-year-old, like, what are you doing? Or to see me clean a tennis court. This week I was cleaning, the, I was sweeping the course this week. And somebody said, I got to get a picture. Yeah. So they got to see you sweeping the course. I was like, no, it's all right. Everybody knows I'm down to earth and I'll like... You know, pick up the little mouse that yeah. runs around here, right? Um, but I was happy for them because I knew it would allow us to drop that whole tennis YMCA tag. Uh-huh. And it would be able to legitimately say, hey, this is one of the best places to play tennis that just so happens to be located in South Side of Chicago. Mm. Um, not like, oh, it's a great community program. Yes, we serve the community 100%. That's our mission. But And education. And education. But I think... You know, sometimes people use that word community as a way to reduce the impact and the expertise that exists in the building. Mm-hmm. And I know everybody on my staff I respect. We have great coaches here mm-hmm. who are all in, fully committed uh, to doing it. And, you know, we hope that people from outside the community continue to come and see it. Well, i got to tell you, one of the first things that I said to you when I was living here in Chicago was um, the thing that was so cool was watching... I remember the day when we had a one white girl that was on the court with me and two black girls. The, was it the sisters that day? Mm-hmm. Madison McKenzie. Madison and Mackenzie were on the court with us. Very poor family. If you've given them essentially free ability to come and play tennis. And they're playing with one of the white kids was one of the wealthiest kids in the city of Chicago, mm-hmm. well, come, coming from a, a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. And we're playing tennis. And their level was the same. Actually, the, the girls, the twins, were better. Mm-hmm. And we were playing uh, doubles, and I said to you afterwards, I said, and then after the set, uh, they were all talking at the net together and just chit-chatting and talking about, you know, tennis and golf, and they were talking about all different things at school. And I said to you, the coolest thing for me is watching these these kids that would probably never talk to one another or know each other's stories talk to each other mm-hmm. because they particularly the young what was the uh, the white girl Bella Bella oh god I know all these guys you know they don't have a terrible memory but Bella is there talking to Madison and Mackenzie and there was no barrier of 
socioeconomics, color. It was like, hey, we play tennis. We're both the same age. We're all the same age. We all have the same struggles about this and that. And they became friends because of tennis and the fact that Mackenzie and Madison were better, you know, made Bella realize, oh, man, I want to be better, you know. But she wasn't thinking socioeconomically about where she was. And to me, that was the coolest. And I said to you, that's the freaking coolest thing for me is making a difference in the city of Chicago, not just here on the south side. You're actually bringing community, the community together. Yeah, I think, tennis. you know, tennis is a global sport. I mean, it's like one of the few, you know, basketball is trying to become global. Yeah. Right? American football is trying to become global, having games overseas, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Tennis is global. Mm-hmm. It's way ahead, right? Yeah. And I think that when we create programs, we need to think globally. We don't need to say, how do we create a program that serves this immediate community, you mm-hmm. know, this one square mile? Mm-hmm. We need to think about how do we create a program that is good enough so that people from outside the community want to come here. I.e. the north side of Chicago to come side, all the way down suburbs, to the south side. All the yeah. kids you saw here today yeah. from suburbs and out of state in Texas and Wisconsin. How do we create that kind of program where, A, they come here for the Odyssey to play tennis, but B, to come to get exposure? Because the peer-to-peer experience in this building is, is second to none. I mean, you got Jewish kids who have kids come to their bar mitzvah. Yeah. Right, but black kids coming to bar mitzvah. You got black kids who like, I'm not going to that kids anymore because they didn't eat all day, right? Because they're celebrating a Jewish holiday where you can't eat, right? So I think that that experience Exposure. is different. You got kids who live in public housing, meeting rich kids, and not even knowing yeah. about the d- disparity, right? And I think as they grow up, think about it, they're going to have ten years of a relationship together. They're here four days a week for the next ten years. They're going to be best friends, and perhaps that kid who comes from money will pull that kid who doesn't along with, along with them, expose them to their network, help them get a job, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that is the potential of tennis, is to really unify the globe, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, even if you look at the tour, I always tell people on tour, we are a part of a traveling circus, and our job is to promote this circus. Mm-hmm. We're going to take the circus from, we're going to start in Australia, then we're going to bring it to America, then we're going to... Take it to Europe, Mm -hmm. then we're gonna take it to England, right? We are like a we are a family that sees each other thirty weeks a year, and our responsibility is to like grow the sport. And so, when we think about these kids' responsibility, it is to expose each other, Mm -hmm. to love each other, because we're all here fighting for the same thing. Everybody's trying to get better. Some people fighting for a scholarship because they need it. Some people are fighting for the scholarship because they want to play college tennis. Yeah. Right? We're all fighting for the same thing. And I think that, you know, if we learn to understand that we all kind of want the same thing, yeah. then I think we'll be better off. Yeah. I love that. All right. So a couple of last questions. Uh, how many kids have you put through this program that have gone to college? 47 kids have started this program, left this program, gone on to Division One colleges. There you go. So that's your that's your goal, really. I mean, yes, you would love to find another Sloan, another Madison Keys, another, you know, Serena and Venus here, or you know, Taylor Townsend, who you worked with for a yeah. long time. But you want to really make sure a they're safe, b they're playing tennis, and yeah. c they're doing what you just talked about, which is bringing community together, but also getting college scholarships. So yeah, people always walk in here and they say, all right, so do you have anybody that's got pro potential? And I say no. It was like not one. I was like not one. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like. I've been on the court with a lot of pros this year. No kid in the building right now looks like that. Yeah. I said, but they can all go to college. Yeah. Right? And I think that, you know, it's just being honest. Like, these people you named are, like, 
freaks of nature. Mm-hmm. Just gifted people were born to do this. Sloan Madison. You might get you know, you'll get one here eventually. You know, maybe one in the next yeah. 20, 30 years. But but you get a hell of a lot going to college. Yeah, most all of them go to college. There's so many college opportunities, so many opportunities to you know come here, get the tutoring, get the education, get a good ACT, SAT score, get good enough to go to college, and then perhaps see what happens. You know what I mean? But the goal is not to produce a, a tennis pro because that is, I mean, there there are actually a lot of good pros who are out on tour. Who should have um, gone to college? Who probably could have benefited from a year or two in college. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or or even kids who are great guys. Like Nicole Gibbs is a great tennis player. Yeah. Right? Went to and, and, but, it, but it's like, you know, living the hard road on tour. Okay, so uh, to finish up, what's one of the funniest stories that you can remember on tour? Talk about the stress. Okay. No, let's I, I'll, t- I'll talk about it. Talk about the stress of the job. And two, how bad your eating habits are and what happened to you on the road with Taylor Townsend. It wasn't funny, but it was like life-changing mm-hmm. events was I was in Dothan, Alabama playing a 50K with Taylor with Taylor Townsend and I think we were going to play the semis and it had been raining for like three days now just so you know Dothan, Alabama is the place in the country where all new police technology is tested so it's not a place that a black man wants to be like you know stuck for like a week Right, so it was a three-day rain delay, right? And at the time, you know, Taylor and I were struggling. You know, we were trying to make it. This is before she made it to the third round of French. It was that season, mm-hmm. and you know, this is when she won like the the wild card challenge, USTA wild card challenge, the clay court season. Blah blah. blah. Um, we're standing at the Econo Lodge because mm-hmm. Sheila Townsend booked us in the Econo Lodge, which was twelve bucks a night, which was not the Terman Hotel, by the way. Yeah. Okay, and there was roaches and. It was a dump. Uh, working girls hey, no. and everything in that hotel. Hmm. Okay? So, I would eat dog food every day, which I do. You know, I eat bad food every day, Yeah, right? McDonald's every morning. But when it comes to, like, a hotel, I need a decent bed. Right? I need a decent sort of place to kind of lay my head, especially when you're trapped in a hotel for three days. Mm-hmm. So, after three-day rain delay, we are finally able to get back on the courts. We are driving to the next match. And I'm like sitting at the stoplight. Now, for my time in pharmaceutical sales, helped me become really good with anatomy and oh. medical conditions oh, okay. and all that kind of thing. So we're sitting at a stoplight, good and I'm like, know. Taylor, I'm having a stroke. And she's like, Yeah, right. I'm like, No, I'm serious. Grab the wheel. I'm having a stroke. Now, at this time, the kid like, didn't even have a driver's license. Okay. So <laughs> I'm like, Grab the wheel, pull over. So we pull over. And so I'm like, Right foot on the gas, left side of my body is completely numb, and like I'm, I'm like pedaling, and pedal like steers the car into a parking lot, and then this is when the iPhone you hit a little thumb to unlock your iPhone. So she takes my thumb, unlocks my iPhone to call Jen. Your right? wife. Said, yes, my wife. Says, "Oh, come out, having a stroke." So she calls nine one one. So then nine one one comes, and the ambulance come, put me in. All right, Taylor. We're actually not that far from the site. You can drive this car. Just drive really slow and go play the match. Come on. Right? She's like, I'm not doing that. I'm like, just take the car, play the match. Job first. Do this, this, and we've been here for five days. You might as well finish the job so we can get to the French Open, right? Um, she ends up not doing it, right? Which I was still pissed at her for that. She should have just took a little rental car. Well, because she was concerned about you. I would have been all right. And I ended up being all right. So anyway, we are... 
I hop in the ambulance and turns out I did have a stroke. It takes me to a hospital, which I don't want to be in a hospital in Dothan, Alabama. Mm-mm. Okay. So uh, they're about to give me a drug called TPA. TPA can cause bleeding in the brain. So if you don't have a full-blown stroke, it's not worth the risk of taking this drug, right? So I'm like stalling. No, don't give me that because I knew about it from my pharmaceutical day. Don't give me that. Don't give me that. No, you need it. You need it. You, know, you need it right away. You got to take it within 90 minutes, et cetera, et cetera. So within that 90 minutes, the function on my left side actually started to come back, right? So it turns out that I had a TA, which is a mini stroke, right? And so before taking PP, TPA, which could have like you know, messed me up, uh, the function came back and I didn't have to take the shot, which is thank God. But let me tell you, that was like life changing. So, so now you just have McDonald's in the morning. Yeah, so now instead of McDonald's three times a day, I only have it once a day. Now, three star better hotel. <laughs> so that's what got you a better hotel. <laughs> Having to have a stroke. Yeah, and I'm not going to play any more 50Ks. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> in small towns. Certainly not in Dover. It's big leagues where I just stay home and work with my five-year-old. Oh, my God. Okay, um, so that it, just tells you how... Oh, my God. It is. I mean, it, it was the entire... But at the time, I was also going through a lot of stress of trying to get this thing done and get this thing built. But, you know, now, actually, that actually taught me to just slow down and breathe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, not to be stressed, to just breathe, everything will be okay. Because I, I do have a tendency to get kind of wound up and be a little intense. Um, and I will say over the past couple years... Even for Sloan. Sloan's very kind of cool, calm, kind of collective. I've had to sort of learn to just be very calm and a little more quiet and breathe. Zip it. Even if I'm like, you know, shitting myself inside to just externally just... Meditate. You know. Got to learn to meditate. Be very calm, Got to meditate. Um, And so that is probably the scariest moment of my short life. Uh, It definitely changed my eating habits. Uh, It changed where I lay my head. And... um, you know, sort of taught me just to breathe. And that's that's the one thing I always, you know, even as a coach, you know, I always tell as long as I, just breathe. Mm. You're fine. Mm. It'll be okay. Trust me. Just I've, breathe. Trust I've been me. on the side of the road having hey, a stroke. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you're have a stroke here in Arthur Ashe Stadium. You'll be all fine. She'll give you another chance, mm. right? Because the great thing about the sport. Gives you another chance. Your opponent, most of the time, will give you another chance, right? And so I think that's a great metaphor for life. You know what I mean? Where tennis is, is just... You always get another chance. You always, it's the fight you get to walk away from. Sometimes on the street, you know, kids make bad decisions and if in the wrong place at the wrong time and you don't get to walk away, right? Tennis is the fight you get to walk away from. And so um, I've learned to just always just breathe and take it easy and just chill. Man, okay, we're going to finish on that because that is awesome. Um, <laughs> Kamal, thanks for joining me. Uh, you are one of my best friends and I respect you, what you've done so much, um, yeah, as a coach, but more importantly, what you're doing for your community here in Chicago and you're changing tennis, the landscape of this country, not only as city of Chicago, but, uh, thanks for joining me and, uh, hope everybody enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Hey man, let's go have a drink. Let's go have a burger. Just have kidding. a burger. And that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Ruggieri, Taylor Dalton, and the team at ACAST. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 